I'd like to welcome you out this morning, and I'd like to ask you if you would go ahead and be getting out a Bible. We're going to be using ours extensively today, looking at several passages. And as you do so, I want to uh, give maybe a brief introductory to this, to this lesson, more so than normal. Uh, recently in one of our men's meetings, we had discussed the idea of, of what is worship, what's maybe the order of worship, what things are involved in worship. And, and I was asked to prepare a sermon on this. Now, I talked a little bit about this last Sunday, and last Sunday was kind of an introductory to this idea. But along the ideas of, and I apologize if this thing gets feedback, I'm going to try my best to get it where it needs to be, but we're experimenting with that microphone as well. Um, along the idea of, of our order of worship, what is our order of worship? What has God prescribed for our order of worship? Well, if you want to go ahead... And take your Bibles out and open them up to the second book of James. Second book of James. That's where you'll find the order of worship. It's not in there, for those of you trying to find it. The second book of James is not going to be in there. God doesn't give us an order of worship. He doesn't say worship should be done in this order right here. First you have announcements, and then you have a song, and after that song you have a first prayer, and then you do the Lord's Supper. God never comes out and tells us how we are to do our order of worship. And maybe it's because of that. Maybe it's because He didn't do that. That so many people today have said, as, as, as Brother Eric pointed out in his, in his uh, prayer, we can worship how we want to worship. God didn't say to do it X, Y, Z, so maybe it's up to us. We'll worship how, how man feels best to worship. And that's not entirely true either. We looked last week at the nature of worship in the church. We noticed the New Testament reveals that the early church worshipped, as we read in the scripture reading in John 4, that we worshipped in spirit and in truth. We talked about that and how that meant that they were, their worship was a spiritual type of worship. That was a worship that was in contrast to the Old Testament. It wasn't this fleshly worship, but it was the new worship. It was a, a true worship and not a type or a shadow which was to come. We noticed in 1 Corinthians how worship was to be for edification in, in chapter 14. And we also noticed in the same chapter that worship was to be done decently and in order. Now before I go on, I wanted to go ahead and point out our, our bulletin this, this morning. I forgot to mention this. But we have a special place in our bulletin for making notes. If you're interested in doing that, I encourage you to, to take advantage of that, uh, that opportunity, that tool. Maybe write some things down uh, that maybe catch your attention or something you might want to study more later. But these are the things that, that God has talked about the worship. He has said the worship should be done in a certain way. And as we pointed those out, doing so and worshiping God in spirit and worshiping God in truth is in keeping with His nature. As it says, God is spirit. So our worship should be spiritual. I also pointed out last Sunday that we are to, to, our worship should be different from the fleshly ordinances of the Old Testament, which were a shadow of things to come. But this morning, I want to look more at what God has said the elements of our worship should be. What is going to make up our worship? That is to say, the activities to which we should be engaged in, the same activities which the early church engaged in during their worship. First, we should remember that when God specifies... When He specifies what He wants us to do, that is all that we are at liberty to do. We can't fall short of His commands, but we can't go beyond either. And this is where many today have, have made mistakes. They have, they have went beyond what God has specified worship should entail for them. Think back to the Old Testament. Think back to the worship of the Old Testament that, that shadowed the New Testament. The Lord gave Moses specific instructions uh, in, in construction of the tabernacle. He, he said that there were special ways that they were supposed to be built. It was supposed to be built in keeping with his instructions, in keeping with the dimensions that he set up. Uh, likewise, he gave special conduct for the worship there in the tabernacle. Uh, he spelled out every detail of the dimensions of the tent uh, that, that was to hang over the tabernacle. He, hung out, he uh, spelled out the dimensions of the curtain that was to surround the Ark of the Covenant. And when I say every detail, I mean, if you go back and study this sometime, he went and said, not only are the dimensions of the fabric supposed to be this amount, and it's supposed to be covered with this type of fur, but the clasps that you use to hold it together, there are to be 50 clasps, and they are to be out of gold. Now, do you think 49 clasps would have been okay when God specified 50? 
Do you think 51 clasps would have been okay? Or hoops or rings? He was so specific with how they were to build this tabernacle. Likewise, he was specific with the, with the worship inside. From the, from the types of utensils that were used to the amount and type of sacrifices that were made, no details were left out in the Old Testament. Thinking back of a time when, when man went beyond what God has said or, or didn't follow exactly what God had patterned out. We think of carrying the ark. And carrying the ark in those days was a very, very nomadic time for Israel. They were, they were to appoint the, or this was appointed to priests alone. Priests were to carry the ark. And when they were to do so in a specific manner, to run poles through the ark and to carry it on their shoulders, one at each corner. And as we saw, uh, if you ever look back to First Chronicles in verse 13, when David did not follow these orders to the T, when they decided, I will find a better way. This is man's way. And it wasn't done maliciously, as so many today don't do so maliciously. Sometimes we might get to think of those, those evil denominations out there that do things with instrumental music. They are just, they must be the Antichrist. Well, it's true that they are not following God's law. They're not following what he specified. But David didn't do this maliciously, as neither do they. David, when you look back and think about what he did, he built a new cart. He built a cart for this to go on, and he said, we're, we're going to make it out of, the finest, out of the finest wood. We'll build this new cart. It'll be glorious. And that's what God deserves, a glorious new cart to bring in the covenant. But we see the end result of that was the death uh, of one. When things didn't go quite the way they planned, as the cart falls over, the death of one who touched it. So let's begin here. Let's begin looking at what God has specified for us and realizing that we can't go beyond and we also can't fall, fall short of this as well. Let me get turned on here. There we go. So, and just in case you have a feeling of deja vu, yes, this is the same slide that we started our sermon with and it's the same scripture reading we started our sermon with last Sunday, but I believe that these... This is in keeping with our, our thought here as we go into part two of this idea. That this is the church that Jesus has built. And this, this are the, the activities, these are the, uh, these are the elements that he has prescribed to, be, to go on therein. And one of the first things I want to look at is some of the elements of the worship in the church. And let's start off with the Lord's Supper. They observe the Lord's Supper. And this is commanded both by Jesus and it's commanded by the apostles. Turn over to Luke chapter 22, <coughs> excuse me, in Luke chapter 22 and look in verse 14, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. We see here Jesus instituting this, this memorial feast that we partake of, this Lord's Supper. But also we see in 1 Corinthians that the apostles taught this to the early church. In 1 Corinthians 11, and in verse, in verse 23 through 29, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the, of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This is the, uh, the memorial that they remembered. <clears throat> in that they remembered the sinless body that was offered upon the cross. They remembered the blood which was shed that provided the forgiveness of sins. And in doing so, they made a proclamation. One, they proclaimed that they had faith in the value of His death. His death was not in vain. 
For it was through this death that they had salvation. But they also proclaimed that they had faith that He was returning. That He had not left them alone, but would someday come back again. We also see one last spot on this in the Lord's Supper. One last thought in Acts chapter 20. That this is something that they did every first day of the week. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. One can come to what we talked about in class this morning. One can come to an inescapable conclusion. That means the only conclusion that one can possibly come to in reading this passage is that on the first day of the week when they came together to break bread and every week having a first day of the week that this was something that they would have done every Sunday. This was not something that they would have just done uh, as a, here's a good occasion, let's get together and do this. This is not something that they would have said, well, it's about time we do this again. It's been a while. Or maybe once a year we'll do that. No. This was something they did every Sunday. And other passages show this. The other passages show that they were gathering, gathering together on a regular basis. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and look in verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay, aside, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Again, this points out that they were of the custom of gathering together on the first day of the week. And on this first day of the week, they would have partaken of the Lord's Supper. That's one of the elements that has been instituted. That's one of the elements that is a part of worship in the church, and that must be a part of the worship of church. But as we've talked about in 1 Corinthians 16, there's another element. They also gave to meet certain needs. The church was noted for its love for one another. Turn back to Acts again. Look back in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 44, we read, "Now Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. This was going beyond just saying, I hope that you get what you need. And seeing someone in trouble, I hope that things work out for you. I hope that you have food on your table tonight. I hope that you have a house over your head. This shows the love that they had one for one another. And the love that they, the way they showed this love is through giving. They gave to one another to make sure that the needs that they had were met. This isn't the only place we see this. Also in chapter 4 and verse 32. Chapter 4 verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed were his own, but that they had all things in common. And with, the great, power of the, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. Again, just showing this great love that they had for one another, that they were willing to give what they had so that everyone could, could have or, or could not have, be in need. So that everyone would, would have a, a lacking of, of this need and have an abundance of, of what it is that they, were, that, they, that they did truly need. Excuse me. But I want to say that this didn't just stop with the local church. This isn't something that just, just happened there at Jerusalem or just at, at any other congregation and it was just a local thing that they did just for themselves. We also see that they also had a, a spilling out of their love that went beyond. Look over at Acts 11. Their love didn't contain themselves just here in, in, in the local sense. In verse 27 of Acts 11, we read, In these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which has also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Here again, we see an example of, of another element of, or another use of this element of worship, of this giving that they did. It was to provide for the needs of other, of other congregations. When there truly was a need, they were willing to help out and to use that, what they had given for that ability. So, what we see then is, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 16, a weekly collection was instituted. 
Something they did on the first day of every week. And it was for a specific purpose. <coughs> it's for a specific purpose for this providing for the needy saints. And they also taught some principles to go along with this. As they did this, they taught some principles. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 16.2 talked about how they did this as they had prospered. As they had prospered, they purposed to give. Now, don't think of this along the ideas that you have to give everything that you have prospered. We couldn't. We never could. What the Lord has prospered us demands nothing less than our lives. And even if we were to give that, we're still in debt. It's not something that, that, that God is saying, I, everything that I've given you, I want you to return to me. Why? Because it's His. Even though He has given it to us, it belongs to Him. But really what is being said here, what has been said as they prospered, saying, look at how I've given everything to you. It's abundantly. I mean, look at the physical blessings that we have in this life, the material blessings. As Jim note, uh, mentioned this morning at the offering, we live in a very prosperous society. You know, this, this whole argument that went along, uh, went, on, went on for a while about the 1% and how we're the 99% and the 1% of this real wealthy uh, organ, uh, people in the United States. And I read not too long after that that all the people that made up that 99% were of the 1% of the world. We are extremely, extremely blessed in a physical sense. We see the abundance there, but also when we stop... And, and, and even more so, when we stand back and we look at the spiritual blessings that we have been given. Blessings that come to mind when we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we think of the body that was broken on the cross. We think of the blood that was shed so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. So that we might have a hope of eternal life in heaven. So that we might not be slaves to sin. That's abundance. That's extreme abundance. And so what is being said here is to give as you have prospered, give abundantly. But that's not all that's said. Sometimes we want to just read one passage and say that's it. But that's not all that was said. First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 8 goes on to talk about um, <clears throat> our, our giving. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 12, we read, for if, there is, uh, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. What we read here is that when we give, we are to give willingly. It is not to be something that we are uh, doing compulsively. It is not to be something that we do out of an obligation, out of a necessity, out of, uh, well, I guess I have to. Here's, here's some money thrown in the plate. It is something that we willingly choose to do. Willingly choose to do and willingly choose to do abundantly. But notice also that it says it's according to what we have. God does not look down upon us as this greedy businessman and just kind of say, more. you got to give more. More. It's not enough. God looks down and says, give abundantly, willingly from what you have. And that's going to be different for me and for Eric and for Charles and for everyone in here. We all have different amounts. We all have differences in what we have, but we all have the ability to do so willingly. We all have been blessed abundantly. But again, not stopping here, we'll look at one other passage in first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And in verse 6 through 8, But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always have all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance of for every good work. Again, we see multiple things in this passage. We are to give cheerfully. When we give, uh, as we talked about other, uh, earlier, it's to be willing, willingly, but it's also to be cheerful. We are to be happy to be able to do this, to be able to give back to the Lord. But also, we need to remember that the principles that go in with sowing and reaping. When you sow a little, you will get a little back. When you sow a lot, you will get more back. And consider that this, what God is saying here, is this offering that you give. It's not a low return investment. It's not something that you're just putting your money away and it's disappearing. At least it shouldn't be if the church is using it the way that it should. He's saying, as you give to me, 
I will create opportunities. Do you notice in verse 8? And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And if you are giving the way you should, there will be opportunities for you to use that money. And yes, you have to choose to use it. But there will be opportunities made if you give. And they will be, they will be large if you give in large amounts. The funds that were used, they were used to help needy Christians. They were used to help those that were, that were suffering from the famine. They were used to help the, the true widows, as we talked about in class this morning. They were even used to, to help orphans. And, and we, see all, we see all that. But they are also used to help those who had devoted their lives to the gospel. That doesn't just include those who preach for a living. That includes all those who, who work for the spreading of the gospel. And we'll come back to that, that idea in a minute. But, but turning over to 2 Corinthians 11... We'll, we'll just we'll take a brief look at this. In verse 8, I robbed other churches, Paul talking, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you, and in one need I was a burden to no one for what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, <clears throat> in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and so I will keep myself. And then also Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and starting in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but notice this, but I seek the fruit that abounds from your account. Indeed, I have all and abound and in full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. We see Paul wasn't seeking this money for his own good. He wasn't seeking the gift. He was seeking it for the amount of of fruit that it would produce in his work for the gospel. And so likewise, servants uh, of of the church, and we'll look at that more as I said in a minute, but that's another, another need or another use for this giving. The next thing we see is that they listened to the word. They didn't just listen. But they were noted in Acts 2 that they paid close attention to the Word. In Acts 2, in verse uh, 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. To continue steadfastly in something means that they would have obviously had to have heard the apostles' doctrine. But I imagine they did not hear it one time and then just know, okay, I know everything there is to know about this. I can continue steadfastly in this for, for the rest of my life. I'm set. This would have required a greater action than simply hearing the Word. They would have studied it. They would have looked at it. And, and they would have treated it exactly as it was. As the, as the Word or the speaking from Christ. As words directly from God. They would have recognized the apostles as ambassadors of Christ. An ambassador is one who acts in, in representation. Or maybe even in promoting, of a, in today's sense, a foreign dignitary. You know, we see ambassadors for, for the United States, ambassadors for President Obama. We see ambassadors from kings and queens and dignitaries all around the world. But we also see ambassadors for things such as special activities. Ambassador for an organization that goes and represents that organization. They recognize that the apostles were ambassadors for Christ. So the words of the apostles were taken very seriously. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians again and look in verse 14, or in chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, Paul says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him, accord, uh, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. We also see in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Or again, Paul writes, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. 
So they recognized the words that were being, that were being taught were the words of God, was coming from God. And was we also that they, that they would have studied this. They would not have just simply said, it's the word of God because Paul said it. It's the word of God because Peter said it. Just like today, I, I ask that you don't believe it's the word of God because Kyle said it. But that which is in keeping with what we have recorded for us. They recognized that, that what, God, what Paul and them were saying was coming, was inspired, was coming from God. And we likewise today should be listening to the preaching, should be listening to what's being said and not just writing it off as, the, as the God's truth. Not just saying, okay, that's what's been said and that's the, you know, that's the beginning of so many religious errors in this world. Is that, that man said it, that man up there at the pulpit, as I've used Richard's expression, Brother Bob. Brother Bob said it. Uh, so many around the world. Uh, Billy Graham said it. Joel Osteen said it. Jimmy DeYoung said it. That makes it the truth. That's not what makes it the truth. And that's why preaching is so important. Opening up God's Word and, and studying God's Word together and also listening, hearing, not just accepting, not just, you know, soaking it up like a sponge, but actually listening to the words that are said. Actually applying it. Studying it. We also see that when they came together in assemblies, that's what the early church was doing. They were coming together to preach. As Paul did in Troas in Acts 20 verse 7, we talked about, we'll flip back over there, Acts 20 verse 7, we used this earlier to talk about the Lord's Supper. But we see that also on this account, when they came together, they used this opportunity to preach. It says that Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, I'm sure you're as thankful as I am that I'm not speaking until midnight tonight. I couldn't do it if I wanted to, I don't believe. But, but they used these opportunities to preach. And not just, uh, not just that, but also turn over to Colossians 4. Look at Colossians 4 and verse 16. <clears throat> we also see the epistles that were written. The epistles that were written were used the same way. They were read in the assemblies. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodiceans. We see that there another, another element of the worship in the, local, in the early church, worship that is authorized by God, was this preaching, listening to the Word. Another thing we see is that they offered up prayers and they offered up songs. Prayers were offered in their assemblies, as we read in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, if we want to turn back over there and look in verse 15 and 17. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen? At the giving of thanks, say, <clears throat> since you do since he does not understand what you say, for you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. We see here that the precedent is indicated that praying was going on in their assemblies. But sometimes we take that as, well, we'll have an opening and a closing prayer, and prayer is done. We've, we've done the prayer, and that's good. But we see there's other examples that we need to look at. Look over at Acts 12. Acts chapter 12, and look in verse 5. We see that in, especially in times of, of trouble, in times of hardship, that the church engaged in prayer. In verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God to him, for him by the church. Also in verse 12 of the same chapter. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. There would be absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, I believe these passages show that it would be encouraged for us to have special services dedicated solely to prayer. Dedicated to a time when we are gathering together just to take up the problems, the hardships, the things that we are suffering and to give them to our Lord. So often times in our own lives we, have to, we struggle with this. We don't do this enough. How much more so in the church should we also be taking the time to give up these things to the Lord? Along these same lines, we also sing that they sang songs to one another, as it talked about there in 1 Corinthians, but also in Ephesians 5.19. Uh, Ephesians 5.19 talks about using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, to speak to one another. And in Colossians 
3.16 says that when doing so, when we speak to one another in songs and hymns, we're also teaching one another. Have we ever really stopped to think about that? Ever, I mean, we, we talked about this in a, in a sermon previously, but have we ever really stopped and thought about what we are doing when we are singing? So oftentimes we focus on the words and, and on, on, the, the, on the notes, on the melody, the harmony, trying to get everything right, and we fail to he, hear the message, the message that is being said, not only by us, the message that our brothers and sisters around us are proclaiming. Now, I, I can't help but think it's one of my favorite songs. Our God, He is alive. I sing that song in a congregation. I, I hear my brothers and sisters right alongside me, singing with me. There is, beyond the azure blue, a God concealed from human eyes. He tinted skies with heavenly hues and framed the world with His great might. And we get to the chorus, and I hear my brothers and sisters, people that I know suffer the same things that I suffer, go through the same hardships that I go through, singing, there is a God. He is alive. In Him we live and we survive. From dust our God created man. He is our God, the great I Am. Do you stop and think of that when you sing that song? It's a beautiful song. The words, the, the music, everything from it is beautiful, but you stop and, sink and think of the importance of your brothers and sisters that are proclaiming the same thing as you, as you sing this song together. We're not alone. We're learning from one another at this moment. We're teaching one another. We're building one another up. That we all serve a God who is alive. Let us remember that when we, when we do or we participate in these acts of worship. And Richard, on, on Wednesday, he said that he, he didn't mean to, to step on my sermon, and he didn't step on my sermon at all. He, he helped out so much. We should have a proper train of thought. We should have a proper aspect uh, of our attitude when we come in here to worship. And it goes with the giving. It goes with the Lord's Supper. It goes with our prayers, with our singing, with our preaching. That is this attitude of a spiritual attitude. We are not here just for the physical being here, just for the physical things that come through it. There is so much more importance to the time that we spend in here and to that physical aspect. We should not be here thinking, well, I wonder what they're serving here in the next few minutes when we, we dismiss at the local restaurant. shouldn't be in here thinking, I, you know, as Richard said, I don't like this song that's been chosen. I obviously hope you don't think, I don't like this sermon that's been chosen. I wouldn't have prayed that prayer that way. I wouldn't have done the Lord's Supper that way. I wouldn't have... We should be here thinking, I am worshiping God. God is spirit. This needs to be a spiritual time when I am applying as much of my own spirit to this worship. These though, these were the activities... These were the activities the Christians engaged in in the worship of the early church. There was nothing more than this, but there, and there was nothing less. Now, like I said last Sunday, the worship, as a, it must be spiritual in nature. So and then you ask yourselves, what's more spiritual than all this than what was going on in the Old Testament? How is the worship of this New Testament any more spiritual than the Old Testament worship? Well, let's examine a few things observing the spiritual nature of the worship in the New Testament. And first thing I want to do is I want to begin by contrasting the Lord's Supper with the Old Testament sacrifices. In the Old Testament, they required, <clears throat> they required many elaborate rituals to be involved with the various sacrifices. And, and there was various commands that went along with these things. And they certainly would have involved the physical sense. Uh, you think of sight and sound and touch and all these physical things that went along with these sacrifices. But the Lord's Supper... The Lord's Supper involves the mind. It's a memorial. The, more, the Lord's Supper is, is done with an emphasis on meditation, an emphasis on self-examination, self-reflection. Much more emphasis is, is given on the inner man than on the outer man and on the attributes and the actions of the outer man. This is why whenever the Lord's Supper is offered... We, we did, again, we hit on this in class this morning. When the Lord's Supper is offered, we should try to bring to remembrance exactly what this sacrifice truly means. And in doing, to do that, we have picked a man. 
and say, you are going to preside over the Lord's Supper. And sometimes we, we think of that and we think, well, that's just that's a very physical action. That man's going to serve the Lord's Supper. And it's true the Lord's Supper is served, but presiding should be so much more than that. And we look back and we think of the spiritual nature of it. When we preside over the Lord's Supper, we should be taking the time to dedicate, or to, excuse me, not dedicate, to, to bring all of our minds into, into focus, into attention. Why are we here? Why are we here on the first day of the week? The main purpose is for this right here, for this memorial. When we spend this time together, are we, are, are we getting up and just saying, here's the Lord's Supper. If you want to take it, it's available, and then we're setting back down. Or are we getting up and we're saying, this blood represents something to each and every one of us. This, this bread that was broken represents the body on the cross. This blood or, or fruit of the vine represents the blood that was shed. This represents Jesus' sacrifice so that we might have that hope. This represents our forgiveness of sins. Are we giving it the due diligence that it deserves? That's the, that's the spiritual side. That's, that's moving away from the fleshly, I'm just going to pass it out. And honing ourselves into a spiritual effort in worshiping when we give the Lord's Supper. But also we want to contrast our giving. As we, did, as we talked earlier, the, the, the giving was an element that was there that is, that is authorized in, in the New Testament. It's a part of the local church, and it likewise contrasted the giving in the Old Testament. The Old Testament required a specific amount to be given. This was often called a, a tithe, and it was usually 10%. It was 10%, but then there were so many other things that were tacked onto it. In certain instances, it was more. And there were so many things that had to be done that you could actually say it was more like probably 30% with all the things that often went with it. And it wasn't done in a manner which, which would induce reflection. It was done and treated a lot like a tax. Here's the money you give, you give it, and, and you're going to give it, and you're, you know, basically you're going to be happy about it. You go do it. But it doesn't have to. You just basically have to give it. You didn't see any commands for them to come up and to give cheerfully, to give out of an abundance. It was simply give 10% and give the best of what you got. And so when we think of that, and we, and we remember what it was like in the Old Testament, and we remember what, what that, how that was very fleshly in, in its institution, and then we look at the New Testament, we see that there's a desire for thoughtful giving done with the right type of attitude. As we said earlier, it was to give as we have prospered, as we have purposed in our hearts, just done so cheerfully, have this attitude of obligation. And as we saw earlier, we'll spend, and I said we'd talk a little bit more about, it's done for supporting the work of the servants of Christ and for the needy saints. That means it's done for the purpose of the work of the church. The work of the church being edification, evangelism, benevolence. Those are the kind of things that we can use this for. When we look back at the uses of the Old Testament tithing, it was for the priests. It was for the feasts that went on. It was for the poor. But here we are told to use it in a way that builds up the church. Use it in a way that evangelizes to the lost. Use it in a way that creates benevolence for the truly needy. Similarly, we also see a contrast in their singing and in Old Testament music. Mechanical music was used in the Old Testament in praising God. When we think of the, the harp, the lyre, the flute. And what this does is it places an emphasis on one's ability. On one's ability to be able to play those instruments. I'll go ahead and tell you right now. In the Old Testament, I probably wouldn't have been one of these mechanical instrument opera players, uh, operators. I, you know, I, I imagine I could probably play the tambourine. I'm sure I could shake a tambourine. I believe I could probably handle that. And maybe if they would say, okay, you, you know, we'll introduce if they had something similar to a guitar, uh, and it was a very, very simple song, kind of like Mary Had a Little Lamb, I'd probably be able to get through worship in the Old Testament. But other than that, they're not going to look at Kyle Blevins and say, that's a great, uh, that's a great music writer. They're going to look at Kyle Blevins and say, we need to find somebody else to do this worship. But that's the kind of worship that we saw in the Old Testament. We saw an emphasis on what the fleshly man can do. But in the New Testament, we see a focus again on the inner man. 
we see that instead of the instrument being the harp, it's the heart. In fact, Ephesians 5.19, as we mentioned earlier, talking about the songs and hymns and spiritual songs, they were to be done where the melody was made within the heart. That's where the emphasis is at. And in Colossians 3.16, it would have said, if you had turned there, we were singing with grace, again, grace in our heart. So when we are singing, we need to remember, as I said earlier, this is the spiritual side of our worship. When we are offering songs to the Lord, when we are singing to one another and encouraging one another, we are not to be focusing on the physical side of this. Granted, there is nothing wrong. And I'll say again, there's nothing wrong. We're singing in tune, trying our best to sing the best we can. In fact, we can see that as me and Jim were talking before services, the Old Testament being this teacher, to we are to give our best in worship. We should be trying to give our best, even in singing, and trying to do our best. To, to, to sing this song to the best of our ability. But our focus needs to be on the spiritual side of this song, on, the, on, on what is being said, the message that is being brought across, not only the message that we bring to God. Are we guilty of lying to God sometimes in the songs that we sing? But the message that we also share with one another, that we are one, that we stand together on these thoughts. And there are several other things that we could contrast, other elements. I mentioned some of them last Sunday. The Old Testament required a physical tabernacle, uh, the temple. The New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3, if you want to jot these down, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17 says that we are the temple now. Christians are the temple, the people of God. Likewise, there was a separate priesthood in the Old Testament. But today, as 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9 says, all Christians are priests. And since we're looking at priests, we'll remember that the priests had special garments that they were to wear. And today, like, it's, it's still kind of the same. We have a special garment. We are to adorn ourselves with Christ. We're supposed to put on Christ, as Galatians 3.27 says. We talked about how the burning of incense was done in the Old Testament. But today, that is likened to our, our prayers, which are as incense to the Lord, as Revelations 5.8 says. And then we saw that there was elaborate ceremonies and special days and weeks of feasts in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, there was a concern for the observance of these days and feasts. Turn with me to Galatians 4. Galatians 4 and verse 10. In Galatians 4 and verse 10, we read, You observe days and months and seasons and years. In verse 11, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Likewise, turn to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. I wanted to read these passages because I wanted to remind ourselves that the problem that we face today with people who have, have left the spiritual side of worship and went back to a physical side is not a new problem. That concern was there, even in the early church. That concern was that these, these feasts and these observances would bring them back into the Old Testament style of worship, take them away from what God had instituted in the New Testament. The worship of the early church was a simple worship, but it was also a very spiritual worship. It contrasted this complex physical aspects of the Old Testament and was designed to affect the inner man. And as I said, this is not to say the outer man is not also affected, but we should always remember that our focus is spiritual in our worship. So to try and bring both these lessons together, I want to, one last time, say that our worship today should mimic that of the, local, of the early church. It should be done spiritually, and it should be, done, uh, be true worship, and that is to say it should not reflect the type worship, the shadow worship of the Old Testament. It should be done for the edification of our members. If our members are not being edified, it is not a proper part of our worship. And it should be done decently and in order. Decent in, in that it keeps with the nature of God, it is seemly of what God deserves, and orderly as in it is not spontaneous, it is not confusing. And it's probably in this regard that we should continue always to strive. As I said last Sunday, we have set times that we will worship. We have said we will be here 
at, at, at 9 o'clock for class, 10 o'clock for worship services. There's no question when the church at, at, at Lake Street is, is worshiping. We have a sign out front. We have a website. We're worshiping at 10 o'clock. That's when we're going to worship. We're going to have a class at 9. In the afternoon, we're going to worship at 2. Sun, or Wednesdays, we're going to have a class at 7.30 with a brief period of worship at the end. We have done this so that we can begin we can be orderly. So let's do our best then to make sure that we are in keeping with that order. Let's do our best to be here on time. Let's do our best to be here possibly even better before time for worship to start. In doing so, it will continue to help us be orderly. It's not starting on time. Maybe postponing services because someone's not here that's supposed to be leading that day. That's not orderly. Let's make sure that we're always striving for that for that which God has said in, 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 in His Word, for the commands that He has made, that we are doing things decently and in order. Let's also always make sure that we are doing the elements that are prescribed by God. The Lord's Supper, giving, prayers, songs, preaching. As I said, these are the only elements that are given. Anything else, anything that goes beyond that, anything that falls short of that, is simply a tradition of man. If we want an example of this, not all tradition of men are wrong, but we want an example of this, take our, example, or take our announcements, for example. We will nowhere in the Bible find where our announcements are commanded to be done. We will not find how our announcements are commanded to be done. And while they are very beneficial to allowing our members know what's going on, who has what needs, what's being done in the services, who's going to be leading singing, who's going to be preaching, who's going to be praying, we must always remember they are completely a tradition of men. If we were to completely cut them out, we would be just as right as having them. Granted, if we were to completely cut them out, we would lose a great deal of edification that they, that they provi- uh, provide for us. But let us always remember that traditions of men are the things that, that we have grounds to say we will not have in our worship. Or we will do a certain way. But we can never ever take that stance with that which God has set in place, with the elements of worship that He has commanded. And sadly today, so many think that to become more spiritual, they need to be innovative. They need to require change, such as mechanical instruments or clapping. We've even heard of some congregations that burn incense, have a special incense lighting ceremony in the middle of the, of the service. Maybe theatrical productions have a play right in the middle uh, of the service or at any time in the service. These things appeal to the fleshly side of man, and they are not appealing to his spiritual side. When one looks to the Old Testament for the kind of worship they offer, they are taking a step back towards this, this fleshly ordinances and not a step forward towards spirituality. I find it interesting. Sometimes people complain. They say, well, okay, that... That singing without instrumental music, that's just boring, though. That's old-fashioned. We need to get up with the times. We need to get, sometimes in the secular sense, you hear people say, you know what you need? You all, you all need a drum set up there and a couple guitars and, and maybe a choir over there. That would be real good. That would sound great. Don't you think that would sound great? And yeah, I, I probably would think it would sound great, but it's not what God says. And when it makes me laugh when I think about this, if people say, now you're catching up. Now you're taking a step forward. The Bible says, no, that was the old way to worship. The mechanical instruments. All that was part of an old fleshly ordinance. The new way is the spiritual side of worship. And any time that we want to take that step back, we need to remember are we asking, when we need to ask ourselves, is it really that outdated, outdated and boring worship, as some might call it, is that really what it is? Is it really outdated? Is it really boring? Or is it simply challenging? Challenging to those who seek to entertain themselves instead of remember why they are here. In the church Jesus built, the worshiper will will seek to worship God in the way that Jesus instructs. So I want to read one last time this passage. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. 
God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. If you'd like to go ahead and take out your songbooks and turn them to number 305. Let Him In is a song that's been chosen for our song of invitation. And as we sing this song, I want to ask each and every one of you, are you a true worshiper? Do you worship in spirit and truth? Do you worship in a way that builds up edification, or that builds up your brothers and sisters, that leads towards edification? Is your worship done decently and in order? I want to suggest to you this morning that if you have not yet become a child of God, then you are not a true worshiper. You are not a true worshiper of Christ. And you're in a state that's sad. And it's scary. But you don't have to be. You don't have to stay in that state. It's a state that you choose to be in for as long as you like to be in. But we must always remember the invitation that God has offered. He's at the door. As this song kind of gives the idea, He's at the door and He's knocking. Will you let Him in? Will you open your heart and prepare a home for the Lord to become a temple for Him? Now we ask the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that He died and was was crucified for, for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe that He rose again and has went and prepared a place? And the simple answer... The, the simple steps that it takes to become a Christian, to open that door and let the Christ in is yes. Yes, I believe. I'm willing to take that step. I'm willing to open my life to submission to Him. I'm willing to repent of the things that I've done wrong in my life. I'm, really, I'm willing to realize that the way I'm going right now is a way that is lost. There's a way that is dark. And that the way to Christ, it's a path. It's a path that is lit by His love. It's a path that is lit by His desire for you to be with Him. And this song that we sing, we call this the invitation song. Please know that this song, at the end of this song, the invitation is not closed. At the end of this song, the invitation is still there. At the end of our prayers, the invitation is still there. When we close those doors and we go back out into the world, the invitation is still there because it's not my invitation. It's not our invitation. It's God's invitation. And God is seeking and calling you. So likewise, if we have become a Christian, but something has crept into our life, some sort of sin that has taken us away from the Lord, please realize that now is the time. If you would like to to ask the congregation for prayers on your behalf, if you would like to confess some sin that might have brought reproach upon the church, or if you simply just have have things that you need to get off your chest with the Lord right now, I encourage you, don't wait. Please come forward as we stand and sing number 305.